So we're looking at the Gospels, in particular the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospels are really important because they are stories of the life of Jesus. And when you're telling a story that you want to be impactful, as the evangelists, the gospel writers do, then you have to recognize that the way you say something is just as important as what you're saying. Uh, to tell a story that makes an impact, you have to know your subject material, you have to know your audience, you have to know something about telling a story. To be a good storyteller, you have to know how to deliver the information uh, so that you'll pique the audience's curiosity, so that you'll inspire them to embody the story in their own lives. Uh, you'll have to give them illustrations that will connect with their own lived experiences. And the gospel writers, in their own ways, are, are really expert storytellers. That's what the evangelists are. They, they know how to tell a good story. That's precisely what the gospel of Mark does, is he tells us the good story, the good news. When we tend to think about something like a gospel, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to do this. Here's how we're going to divide this sermon up. A little bit about gospel of Mark, a little bit about what Mark tells us. Okay, so a little bit of background of gospel of Mark. When we tend to think about Gospels, we almost think of them as, as biographies. You know, we have four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, uh, they're not biographies. Uh, in the ancient world, we had biographies, but they were different than what we think of today. Today, a biography is a factual telling. It's like a journalistic sort of writing. You know, it's just the facts, ma'am. Like, that's what we think of as a biography. But in the ancient world, a biography was a little bit of a different thing. It was, it was a story told, but it was a carefully curated story. You picked and you chose the, the episodes in a person's life in order to tell the story from a particular angle, which is why we have four Gospels. Otherwise, we'd only need one, right? If we had just all the facts and details of Jesus' story and that's all we needed, we would just have one Gospel. Instead, we have four. Because each of the evangelists wants to tell us a story about Jesus within the bio biolog or biographical details of his life. So they take the life of Jesus and they pull out the episodes that they want in order to tell a specific story about Jesus. It's sort of like how an artist used, uh, uses a palette and paintbrushes and different colors of paint. They're, they're creating a portrait of Jesus using these episodes as these individual colors so that they, uh, they give us a story from a particular angle with particular details that highlight specific aspects of who Jesus is. All of the gospel writers do this. They all tell us about Jesus from a particular angle. And it's, it's okay, I'm going to give you permission. It's okay to have a favorite gospel. And it's okay, I'm telling this to myself, it's also okay to have a least favorite gospel. Because I definitely have a least favorite gospel. I'm going to just reserve that for a minute, okay? The gospel of John was always my favorite I always liked the Gospel of John. See some heads nodding. Other people like the Gospel of John too. It's a good one. And when they're all good ones, but it's a really good one. You know, it's really, it's got that deep spirituality. It's got these stories of Jesus that highlight his, his majesty and his power and, and, and his godness. You know, the Gospel of John is a really powerful gospel. And then, and then for a while, I really liked the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke is really good too, because the Gospel of Luke is Jesus as the ultimate transformer of society. You know, he goes, it's, it's the leveling gospel. It's the, the mightier brought down low and the lower raised up high. It's Jesus as this, 
this sort of wrecking ball to sin. You know, he just comes on the scene and he, and he really teaches us the way to live the kingdom. And I really liked the gospel of Luke for a long time too. And then, but I don't like the gospel of Matthew. That's the one I don't like. But the gospel of Mark has really grown on me. I mean, Matthew's fine, you know, I guess. But, but for me, Mark has really grown on me. I've really come to love Mark. And the reason why is because of this story that he tells about Jesus, the particular angle that he gives us of Jesus. Jesus in the gospel of Mark is the most, this, let, me, let me put it this way, the portrait that Mark portrays is the most mysterious, enigmatic, blunt but subtle Jesus of any of the gospels. And we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight, what that means, why Jesus is portrayed in this very particular manner in the gospel of Mark. It's very different. It's very different from the other synoptic gospels in particular. And the synoptics are those three that, that, you know, if you weren't paying attention, you'd say they were all the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very similar in the way that they tell the story of Jesus. But their differences are really, really key to understanding what each writer wants us to know about Jesus Christ. Mark emphasizes this Jesus who is extremely mysterious, who's powerful but secretive, who's blunt but subtle. The story of Jesus that Mark tells, he does so in a manner to draw the reader in. We tend to identify ourselves with characters in Mark's story because the way that Mark tells it is really compelling. In Mark's story, Jesus goes everywhere immediately. That's, that's the word that people always kind of highlight when you read the gospel of Mark. It says, and from the, from the call to worship this morning, as soon as he came up out of the baptismal waters, he hears the voice from the Father, and immediately the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. And you go on another few verses, and immediately he begins to preach. And you go on another few verses, and immediately he gets into the boat and goes across. The, immediately is this refrain in the gospel of Mark. He's telling a fast-paced story. And in the midst of all of that fast action, we see people over and over again asking questions like, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Where did this man get this power? From where did he get this wisdom? People are a little bit confused. They're baffled by this Jesus who just shows up on the scene and, and does things so immediately. And Mark tells us the story that way on purpose so that we will also identify ourselves with those characters. And we're like, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Where are, we, where are we at now? You know, which side of the lake are we even on now? We've immediately crossed five or six times in 10 verses. I don't know where we're at. You know, Mark does that on purpose because it, 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 focuses, uh, it focuses us in on the story so that we pay attention to those details. Where are we? What are we doing? Who is this Jesus that we're hearing about. As we read, we identify ourselves with the disciples. We identify ourselves with the crowds. We are in amazement at this Jesus who is so powerful, who is so active, who is doing so many things. And what's interesting about the Gospel of Mark too, unlike the other two synoptics, unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't include a lot of Jesus' teachings. Jesus doesn't so much teach about the kingdom of God as Jesus is the kingdom of God in Mark. He's not telling you how to be in the kingdom. He's showing you. He is being the kingdom. He embodies what it means to be in the kingdom of God. You go around and you cast out demons and you heal the sick and you raise the dead and you feed the hungry. In the gospel of Mark, Jesus is the kingdom of God. And he's inviting people at every turn 
come on in this trip with me. Come and join me in this kingdom of God. He's not telling them what to do. He's saying, come and see, you know, come and be a part of this action. And that's really the story that Mark is trying to tell, is that we are invited as we read the gospel to join Jesus in this kingdom work that he is doing, to join Jesus in this new world of God's reign here and now. And Mark entices us into this story, uh, not by the details that he includes, that the other gospels don't include. He actually entices us into this story by the things he leaves out. And you pick up in Mark chapter 1, where, where Jake read for us in the, in the beginning, and you would think, if you turn to the beginning of the gospel, you can, you can respond here, okay, this is not a rhetorical question. If you were to start the reading of, of a biography, where do you think the biography would start in that person's life? In the beginning, right? Maybe at their birth, right? <laughs> Not Mark. In Mark, we turn to chapter 1, and we begin the story of Jesus with his baptism. He emerges on the scene like a supernova from the sky. We don't get to hear about, uh, about his birth and his upbringing. Instead, we get Jesus first as this fully grown adult who is coming to be baptized. You read Mark chapter 1, and you're kind of like, but, but where's the manger? You know, where are the shepherds? Where's the wise men? Where's the Virgin Mary? Where's Joseph and, and Gabriel? Where, where are all of these things we've come to associate with the beginning of the story of Jesus? Where, and Mark doesn't include them. Now, that's not because Mark doesn't know that those things happened. And it's not because Mark doesn't believe that those things happened. Remember, Mark is trying to tell a very particular story. He leaves things out that don't contribute to the story he's trying to tell. And so it's not that those things are not important. It's that they don't really apply to the story he's telling. And we all know, because we've all been in those situations where you get, when someone's going to tell you a story and you get bogged down in the details that don't matter to the story. I know that y'all have, you know, or you, or you get, you get uh, involved in a storyteller who tells you the same story over and over again. Like I know that we've all, heard from Josh Womble before, right? Like, you know, those, those people who tell the same story over and over again, right? Those same, those people who will tell you the details that don't really matter. Oh, I've got this hilarious thing. I got to tell you, we went out to eat. We went out to get barbecue the other night. It was, uh, where was it? Oh, was it shack in the back? No, it wasn't shack. In the back. Well, but it, had, it was barbecue. Maybe it was Mark. No, it wasn't Mark's because we got Mark's on Sunday and this was, this was on a Wednesday. Or maybe it was Tuesday. I don't, uh, but anyway, we were driving down National Turnpike. And uh, no, it wasn't National Turnpike. It was Outer Loop. We were going to Outer Loop. And by this point, you don't care how funny the story was in the beginning. You've lost all interest. And it's just the story has fallen flat, right? Well, that's the kind of thing that Mark is trying to avoid here. He's got a story to tell. And, and like all of the practical purposes, you know, in the ancient world, when you write on a scroll, you've got limited resources. You know, you want to make sure you just get to the facts, just to the details of the story you're trying to tell. All of that's a part of this. But really, it goes deeper than that. Mark is trying to connect to his reader on a personal level. So he's only including the details that will contribute to the story he's trying to tell. He's only using the color paints that are going to paint the, the portrait of Jesus that he wants us to see and focus on, okay? So those details that are left out of Mark, he does that on purpose so that we say, I want to know more about this Jesus. 
there's not enough here to, to satisfy my interest, my curiosity. Mark leaves those details out so that we'll dig deeper into the story, so that we'll, we'll intentionally read more carefully, so that we can find out more about this mysterious Jesus that we have here. So we can say that Mark tells us a true story, but it doesn't include every detail in the life of Jesus. And that's okay. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, uh, uh, that author says that if, if all of the things Jesus had done had been written down, the world could not contain the books. Well, Mark knows that, so he's not even going to try. He's going to focus on what he wants to tell and make sure that he gets it down right. And we actually end up wanting to read the story more because of those tantalizing uh, uh, pieces that are left out those tantalizing absences in the story. They make us question. They make us wonder. They draw us in so that we want to know the story. So what is the story? Well, the goal of Mark's writing is that we encounter Jesus. That's the goal of writing this gospel. It's not so that we'll know more about it from an academic sense. It's not so that we can learn the facts about Jesus' life. It's that we will encounter Jesus for ourselves. And in order to get a better understanding of really that goal of Mark's writing, let's look at the other place where Mark is really different. So the beginning of Mark is, is very different. No birth narrative, no manger, no shepherds, no wise men, none of that. But the other place where Mark is really different is at the very end. The very end of Mark is very different as well. The resurrection of Jesus in Mark's gospel, listen to me, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound heretical, but just let me be heretical for a minute and then we'll come back to it, Okay. When you get to the end of Mark's gospel, the resurrection of Jesus is, is almost disappointing. Because when you get to the resurrection of Jesus in Mark's gospel, there's no uh, mistaken Jesus for the gardener. That doesn't happen. Uh, or it's not recorded, I mean. Uh, there's no road to Emmaus experience. There's no reconciliation with Peter. There's no showing up in a locked room. There's no put your finger in the hole in my side. There's no breakfast of fish on the beach. There's none of that stuff in Mark's gospel. In fact, in Mark's gospel, at the resurrection, we don't even get to see the resurrected Jesus. He's not there. That's the tantalizing thing about it. The women come to the garden tomb. The stone has been rolled away. They go in, and there is the angel sitting there, and he says, he is not here. And as if to drive that, po that point home even more, Mark doesn't give us a picture of the resurrected Jesus. We don't get to see him. What we are left in our minds is he is not here. He's been resurrected. The angel tells the women, Go and tell his disciples and Peter to meet Jesus in Galilee, and there they will see him just as he told you. Interestingly enough, throughout the Gospel of Mark, this mysteriously powerful Jesus does a lot of healings, a lot of exorcisms, a lot of feedings, a lot of different works of power, and almost invariably, Jesus will tell the recipient, don't tell anyone. Jesus will heal somebody and he'll say, don't, don't tell anyone what has happened. Jesus will, will feed people and he'll say, don't tell about what I've done. Jesus will cast out a demon and he'll tell the demons, be quiet. Don't tell anyone who I am. And what happens? Almost invariably, it says, they went out and told everybody 
about what had happened. But this one time in the gospel where the angel says, go and proclaim the good news. Go and tell someone that the resurrection has happened. It says at the end of Mark, the women ran out in fear and trembling and said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The Jesus who throughout the gospel has wished to be sought rather than proclaimed Now it is told to the women, go and proclaim the good news, and they're too afraid to do it. And that's interesting. And we read that, and we're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Now, obviously, they did tell somebody. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the story, right? At some point, they said something to someone, or else we wouldn't know this is how it happened. But for the moment, they're so amazed at the fact that Jesus is not there, that they're terrified at what this means. It's, it's this amazing moment where we, like the women, are confused. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to think. Mark writes it that way on purpose because what the angel says gives us a key into what Mark is doing here. All right, follow me here. The angel says, just as he told you, Jesus will meet you in Galilee. When we go back to Mark chapter 1, where do we first see Jesus? He's coming from Galilee to be baptized. So the first thing that this should point us to is the angel and Mark as writing this gospel is telling us, now go back and read this book again, knowing how it ends. Go back to Galilee where Jesus comes to be baptized. Go back and see him going throughout the Judean countryside, healing and and teaching and, and exercising demons. Mark is saying, go back and follow Jesus in his footsteps as he goes up towards Jerusalem to be crucified. Go back and read this book again, knowing how it ends, knowing that Jesus is resurrected in the end. Go and encounter the risen Christ throughout this book all over again. But the second thing that this does is it actually invites us in our own lives to encounter the resurrected Christ. Because importantly, there's no ascension story at the end of Mark either. At the end of Mark, Jesus is at large. He's let loose on the road somewhere. He tells his disciples, go meet me in Galilee. And that's that's the end. We don't, we don't see Jesus ascending to heaven in the clouds. Mark leaves it wide open because this Jesus that Mark is telling us about is someone who could be experienced by anyone at any time. As one of my Bible study leaders in college used to pray, he would pray that we may have an objective collision with the risen Christ. You never know when you're going to turn a corner and there's Jesus. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see people who have had those experiences, those encounters with the risen Christ. Most famously, Paul on the road to Damascus has his objective collision with Jesus Christ. Mark is setting it up so that each one of us may keep our eyes open so that we may see when we run into the risen Christ, that we may keep our hearts open to experience Christ wherever he may be found throughout our daily lives. It's important that Mark leaves that door open for us because it's an invitation to this new world that Christ has invited us into. And so we find ourselves like the disciples asking, who is this Jesus? Here's Mark's answer. Who is this Jesus that we might objectively collide into? It's important to note that the voice of God the Father is only heard twice 
in the gospel of Mark. In some of the other gospels, God will kind of come into the, 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 the scene and he'll make a statement. You know, he'll confirm something. He'll say something. It'll say a voice was sounded and it sounded like thunder to some people and other people heard what the voice had to say. In Mark, the voice of God the Father is only heard twice. Once at Jesus' baptism. This was the passage that Jake read for us from the, uh, from the first chapter of Mark where it says in the, in the, earliest, uh, trans, or in the earliest copies that we have, this is how it's worded. Jesus came up from the waters, and as he was coming up, he heard a voice from heaven say, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. Now we're probably more familiar with hearing that phrase from one of the other gospels in which it reads, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And you might say, you're kind of splitting hairs here, man. What difference does it make? Importantly, before Jesus had done a single miracle, before he had uttered a single message, before he had begun his ministry, he hears an affirmation from God the Father directly to him, as if a finger pointed to him and said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had an affirmation of his identity before he started any of his work in which he heard the voice of God speak to him directly and say, you are my son. It's an affirmation that I can imagine, although it's not recorded in the Gospel of Mark, but I can imagine Jesus probably carried that affirmation with him throughout every high and low of his ministry, throughout every reward and setback that he experienced. I can imagine Jesus telling himself, I am the beloved son of God. I heard the voice. I know it's true. Jesus reminded himself of that sonship Throughout his ministry, his ministry began with an affirmation from God the Father saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The only other time that the voice of God the Father is heard in the gospel of Mark is at the transfiguration in which Jesus is transfigured before his disciples of Peter, James, and John. And there it's recorded that the voice, voice of God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's a confirmation, not to Jesus. Jesus knows that he's the son of God. It's a confirmation to the disciples who have been asking this entire time, just like we have, who is this? God's voice breaks through and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to what he has to say. God first affirms the sonship of Jesus Christ at his baptism, and he confirms the sonship of Jesus Christ at the transfiguration. Jesus knows he's the son of God. The disciples know he's the son of God. This is who Mark is telling us about. This is the Jesus that he's telling a story about. This Jesus, when we ask, who is this? The answer is, this is the son of God. The absence of the voice of God throughout the rest of the book. When you think about this is the only thing God has said in the whole book of Mark. It makes the cry from the cross all the more poignant 
For here we see Jesus, who has reminded himself throughout years of ministry, I know that I am the Son of God. I heard the voice. It was affirmed in me. It has been confirmed to my disciples. I am the Son of God. And on the cross, in his death, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can picture him in my head. I thought you said you loved me. I thought you said I was your son. Where are you now? And even in the midst of affirming Jesus' divinity, and we know that he was God, and we know that he knew that he was God, but in his pain and in his, in his moment, he cries out in these words, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's silence. There's no voice that booms over Golgotha affirming Jesus Christ in this moment. There's no voice that echoes over Cal Calvary correcting the mocking crowd. It's silence. And Jesus dies. And the people think the story's over. And although God's voice is not heard again in the book, Although God's voice does not boom over the resurrection tomb, we see God answers that question, why have you forsaken me, with the affirmation, the ultimate affirmation of raising this Jesus from the dead three days later. As if there were any more powerful way to affirm Jesus' sonship, God raises him from the dead, resurrects him, and sets him loose on the world again. Jesus does not ascend at the end of the Gospel of Mark. He set loose on the world that we might encounter the resurrected Christ for ourselves. The good news of Mark is that Jesus Christ is the beloved Son of God. He is risen and that you may encounter him for yourself. And when you do encounter this risen Son of God, when he gets a hold of you, when you entrust your life to him, when you go down into those baptismal waters and you are united with Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, you become incorporated into Christ. You become adopted into the family of God. And God the Father looks at you with the same affirmation he gave Jesus and says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Folks, that is the good news of the gospel of Mark, and it is good news indeed. Thanks be to God. Amen.